people aren't going to like you. People are going to criticize you. People aren't going to understand why you do the things that you do because you're trying to reflect rehabilitation. But you have to be the person who speaks out about what really matters to the incarcerated, why rehabilitation is important, and why second chances are important. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Hardest Step, a podcast about second chances and redemption. We're part of the Lost Debate Network, and I'm your boy, Klaus Marte, the founder and CEO of Combody, a nonstop prison-style boot camp where we proudly hire formerly incarcerated individuals as our instructors. And I'm Chris Marte, a New York City council member representing my community in lower Manhattan and also Klaus's younger brother. Our guest today is someone who also found us calling behind bars. He now helps incarcerated people report on issues that matter the most to them. That's right. And near the end of his sentence, he became the editor-in-chief of the San Quentin News, a monthly newspaper issued to dozens of prisons in California. And now that Jesse Vasquez is a free man, he is the director of development for the Friends of San Quentin News, a nonprofit organization that works to advance the newspaper's mission. Jesse, welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to get right into it, man. Your story is pretty wild. And I found a lot of similarities to your story with mine going in as a juvenile offender at 13 years old. I think it's pretty crazy what you've accomplished while you were inside and what you're doing right now. But I want to hear about like that situation. Like, Take me back a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. So I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles, Santa Ana, Orange County, San Diego. Come from, you know, middle class family, good father, good mother, you know, parents were present. But in, when I was an adolescent, you know, I just uh, started running the streets. It wasn't the bad crowd. It was just a crowd that was there, you know, and I just happened to fall into some steps that led me down the path that, you know, eventually I would regret. Drugs, violence, and uh, gang activity. Probably about 13 years old, started my uh, criminal career in the juvenile system. And then it culminated in my life sentence at the age of 17. When you went in when you were 13, did you say to yourself, I'm never going to come back here? Or did you feel like this was just the way it was kind of thing? No, I think, you know, growing up, it was the reality of my neighborhood and my family was like, you're either going to end up in jail or you're going to end up dead. You know, those were the only two options that we saw, you know, just because there was nothing else to do. And when I went in the first time, I remember thinking to myself, like, well, this is the beginning of the end. Like, I knew that I was going to be in and out till it was all over with. Damn, that's crazy, man. We both relate on the fact, you know, our, our parents are Hispanic immigrant. I don't know if your parents are immigrants, but like coming to this country, they they want more for us. And then we just... You know, myself, I, Chris is a different story. He ended up being a politician and changed his life around, but he actually saw me getting locked up at 13. And that path, you know, was a fork in the road where he was like, I'm going to go in the straight and narrow. But for me, it was like, I was just a knucklehead and I was not scared. Did you feel that way? Like as a kid, you were like, you got locked up and you just went right back to the streets and was just like, this is what it is. Yeah, I got I got brave. I'm pretty sure you can probably relate. Yeah. You know, you go on the first time and it's like, oh, it ain't that bad. <laughs> and you just get used to it. I got a younger brother just like you. I got three younger brothers, matter of fact. But uh, my brother, Papa, he was the closest one to me. And you guys remind me of <laughs> me and him. Because he went on to become a marketing director for Dave & Buster's and Damn, started as a nice. marketing firm. And I went Damn. to prison. 
<laughs> so it's kind of like the same thing, right? But yeah, I felt kind of brave after I went in the first time. And then it just became um, the lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, for me, it was like going in back and forth. I became numb to it and it was nothing. It was not like anything serious. You know, it was just like, uh, all right, I'm going in, I'm coming back out and I'm going to do my thing. You know what I mean? And I'm, I felt like I was becoming a better drug dealer and, and convincing myself like, yo, this is the reason why I got caught because I turned this block and I should have turned that block, you know, and just messing with your head mm -hmm. like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, while I was incarcerated, I really got into fitness and, and changed my life around. And you obviously know people that are beasts at working out in there, but what drew you into to the passion that you have right now? You know, I think we, we both find ways to cope, right? Like exercise for me was an outlet. I had three life sentences. I wasn't getting out. I didn't have any hope of going anywhere with my life. And the problem with being Hispanic, as you know, is that you have this machismo that you carry with you. You know, you can't show emotion. You can't show weakness, especially in prison. California uh, prisons are like gang and race segregated. And like, you really can't show no emotion. So when I went in at a young age, I was still being formed and I could deal with the reality of a life sentence. I just couldn't cope with the fact that like, no longer would I be able to see my family, make personal choices, make any type of decisions for myself. Even our workouts are dictated in prison. Like it isn't an option in California prisons, whether you want to work out or not. So for me, it became a discipline, but then I found my passion for storytelling, and journalism because writing was my only outlet and writing was the only way that I can get out those inner demons and then be able to like flush the paper after I was done. I would write pages upon pages of, you know, like the trauma that I was living, the things that I was seeing. And it was like things that, you know, you can't tell the guards, you can't tell the psychiatrists, the psychologists, you know, you don't want those type of stories getting out there because they can incriminate you. They can incriminate somebody else. So I used to just like narrate what was going on in my head and then I would tear up the paper and flush it down the toilet. But then I realized like, you know what, this is a strong tool for advocacy and for coping. Initially, I just figured, you know what, I just want to tell this story to myself so I can get it out of me because it's killing me on the inside. Like I needed to get it out of me because it was just like I still got night terrors, but I used to have worse night terrors when I was in prison. And then once I started like helping others tell their stories, it was like empowering to see them like, you know, find that healing and find a way to like identify with other people and like share that common humanity. How long did it take you to get to that point? I know for costs, the doctors almost gave him like a wake up call after years being inside. And, you know, it was almost forced upon him that he had to change his life or it might cost his life. For you, was it after a few years or was it like an immediate escape, you writing every day? No, it took about a decade. <laughs> it took about a decade because, you know, when you go into maximum security prisons, the only thing that you're concerned about is survival. You don't have time to process anything, you know? You don't have time to think about like, what's the impact that this is having on my family and stuff. It took about a good nine, 10 years for me to finally like wake up and see like I need to like deal with this stuff because I'm very irritable, I'm very stressed, you know, like I'm just going through the motions of life and it seems like I don't have any purpose. Yeah. And you, and you uh, self-taught yourself like writing, reading and all that stuff while you was incarcerated? I did. Wow. I did. I think the last grade I went to in school was the seventh grade. And then after that, it just like I became a good reader. That's what made me a good writer, too. 
how was that process? Because I, I know there's people that I've met people that haven't self-taught themselves, you know, while they're incarcerated, how to read and write. But like, where do you start? You just like you in your cell and somebody's throwing you a book and then you just start. Yeah, well, I ended up in the hole. And I mean, I was a good student when I was in school. Like I was a great student. I just liked the gangbang after school. You know, I had a, yeah. <laughs> I had two <laughs> lifestyles going on, but I could read and, you know, I just couldn't like think critically. So when I got into the hole, all I had was time and every single book that I could get my hands on, I would read it. But also like I started thinking like I got this grammar book that got me to really think about sentence structure and syntax and word order, you know, and that got me thinking about how we like put our thoughts together, you know, and how we communicate with people. And I read a book on communication that actually changed my whole perspective. And it talked about how everybody has thoughts, but not everybody's thinking. And the, th the difference between having thoughts and thinking is, you know, you can be a thought provoking individual, but if, unless you're following that thought to its complete conclusion, you're not really thinking the process through. And that just showed me like, you know what, there's an impact to how you write and what you write. Because if you follow that train of thought to the end, you can convince somebody about something. That's what storytelling does for, for me, right? Like I learned through Aesop's fables, you know, a lot of the morals that were handed down to us, right, from our parents and stuff like that. It was always through dichos, you know, just like folklore <laughs> and tales, right? Yeah. It wasn't even through like, you know, let me, it's like Hispanic moms have this thing about giving you an example. That was you know, not, it's it was not even statistics. Written. It was never yeah. written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, and it was like, wow, you know. Our mom is always deriving from dreams, you know, so like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sueño, you know, <laughs> had a dream. Exactly. I still go through that right now. <laughs> My mom always like warned me, don't go down this block. I had a dream, you know, that this thing happened, blah, blah, blah. And, I, you know, it's always like that folk story. And then somebody takes that story, turns it into another story as well, man. But I, I definitely like understand, you know, I was in the box myself and, and being in the hole. Writing was definitely an escape. I actually took time every day to write. Yeah. And when you get out here, like, I remember thinking, finally, when I got a parole date, you know, and this was like, when writing really came into like being for me, right? Like in terms of taking something that had been so instrumental in my growth, and then using it for practical purposes to apply to like, you know, my transitioning plan. How was I going to deal with the reality that when I get out into society, I can't be asking where do the Mexicans sit? But how do you explain to people out in the real world that you're coming to an alien world, you know, when you've been gone for about 20 years, especially when those years were like your formative years. Was that your motivation to go into college in, in prison or what led you to say, I'm actually going to control what I can right now? So reading was one thing, right? But I don't know if this was the same for you, Kaz, but when your thinking becomes elevated, it's like something clicks. You start thinking like, I really don't belong here. This is just like too small of a world to hold me, mm -hmm. right? And I started thinking like, man, I got to like do something better. So thinking rationally was one thing, but thinking academically and like having that power of logic and rhetoric and understanding like, you know what, like I can shape my world and I can shape my life. That was very empowering to me. And that came, you know, maybe a couple of years before I was actually given the opportunity to go to college. But I remember thinking like, man, I, I really do need an education because being able to think critically was like a game changer. 
I feel the exact same way. I actually did college. I did two years of college. Well, 60 credits of college while I was incarcerated, but that takes a, a longer time to get 60 credits because they don't give you, you know, mm-hmm. full 15 credits a semester like the real world or 20. But while I was in there, I took psychology and just sitting back, you know, going to read those textbooks in those <laughs> classrooms and going back to myself and just like, I got to like read over the whole DSM volume four and you see people really acting around and you're like, yo, that ha- that guy has a dis- some type of disorder. And so I started analyzing people, but people are following this person, you know, that mm-hmm. has this mm-hmm. type of disorder and feel like they're like, you know, yeah. the la primera, the, the number one person, you know? And um, yeah. it's, it's, it's wild, man. And, and it, it takes a while uh, as our brains are still developing, we're more, more easy to take a risk. You know, I think when I was 13 and, and going to juvie and, you know, doing juvenile crimes and then going in at 23 was a different story than going in at 13 and, and 14, 15. You know, I, was, I just didn't really care. But as an adult, it's just a different story. But I want to know more about like San Quentin, the newspaper, and how does that work? Man, it's a premier award-winning newspaper. It's probably like one of the only independent-run newspapers in the nation to this day. We raise our own funding and stuff like that just to make sure that we have editorial independence. You know, the state obviously gives us a lot of leeway and permission to operate it within the prison system. But I found out about the San Quentin News when I was at Folsom State Prison. They were sending out this newspaper. And they had just started sending it out in 2013 or 14. Before then, it was only circulating inside of San Quentin. So when I got my hands on it, there was two stories that caught my attention on the front page. Number one was what used to be known as the Prison University Project. That was the only in-college prison in the state of California. So that was the first story on the, on the top of the fold. On the bottom, it was people playing tennis with outside volunteers. And I was like, man, this has got to be state propaganda. <laughs> like, this is not real, <laughs> homie. Like, this is not happening inside of yeah. a prison <laughs> in California. Because remember, up to this time, right? Like, I've already been in 15 years, and right? How, and 16 you, you years. you bounced around all over the state? Yeah. I bounced around, like, man, like, at least a dozen institutions. So all of a sudden, I'm like, man, like, I ain't never seen this before. I'm one of them guys, I always want to experience something without people telling me about it. <laughs> like, I don't want people to tell me, oh, this is how it is in the shoe. I got to go there and check it out. Yeah. I don't want somebody telling me this is how it is in the hole. I got to go to the box. I got to check it out for myself because I don't like people telling me stories that are going to one up mine. So I was like, I got to get to San Quentin. So I put in for a transfer. I get over there. I went for the college and then they recruited me for the paper. Because I was a good writer, some of the guys on staff, you know, they liked my character and stuff. I started getting involved with the newspaper and the journalism guild. That's like the farm team at the paper. And being in that newsroom, I don't know if they had this in New York, Cos, when you was there, but like there's a safe haven inside of certain institutions, right? Whether it's the library, whether it's the basketball court, for us, it was a newsroom. It didn't seem like you was incarcerated. You were there with a bunch of computers, with a lot of volunteers, with a lot of free staff coming through. The officers walked in and it was like they treated you like just regular human beings. And like that environment of professionalism fostered like some type of different growth for me. But the publication, the power that it had for me, 
was when one of the older guys who rest in peace, Arnulfo Garcia, he was editor in chief at the time for about eight, nine years. He paroled after about 23 years and died 67 days out. Wow. So his story hit us hard. But when he was there, I was uh, fortunate enough to be mentored by him and Richard Richardson, Bonnaroo. And uh, I remember him telling me, he says, look, the role that you play on this paper is important because you speak on behalf of 136,000 prisoners in California. Nobody else has this platform. And you should take this serious because it's a responsibility. He says, people aren't going to like you. People are going to criticize you. People aren't going to understand why you do the things that you do because you're trying to reflect rehabilitation. But you have to be the person who speaks out about what really matters to the incarcerated, why rehabilitation is important, and why second chances are important. I think that's dope, man. They don't have anything like that in New York. I just feel like I want to know, did the newspaper really influence these officers and other facilities to make different changes? And Do you report on other facilities around California? And does every prison in California receive your newspaper? Yeah. So up until 2012, the newspaper wasn't going out of uh, San Quentin. But in 2012, surprisingly, and this is the interesting thing about San Quentin News. San Quentin News was started in 1940s by a warden because a warden believed that the incarcerated should have a voice, that they should be able to tell their own stories and that they should be able to like stop the rumors that were happening. Because sometimes, you know, there's administrative policies that are happening. There's laws and stuff that affect the incarcerated. And there's a lot of rumors that circulate. But like there's a difference between reality and a rumor. So the warden back then, he believed that, you know what, like these guys deserve a newspaper. That's how it started. In 2008, it was revived by another warden. And in 2012, there was a warden by the name of Ron Davis. And he was the one who expanded the paper and opened up the doors into all 36 prisons in California. So up until then, we only had like a distribution of 4,000. Now we're at a distribution of 40,000 across all the state of California, four juvenile facilities, and all the adult facilities that we have in the state prison system. I want to get back to some of the dynamics that you mentioned earlier. You pretty much lived in a two-tier system, right? You were incarcerated, but when you went into this newsroom, that was like a whole different playing field. But when you returned back to being incarcerated, did people perceive you differently? You're a journalist now. Were people scared to talk to you because they might see you as a snitch or might report something that they didn't feel comfortable about? How was that experience? It was pretty interesting, right? Because when I go back to the uh, prison yard, it was like, yeah, you know, people always want to remind you that you're an inmate. The people in blue wanted to remind us more that we were inmates than the actual officers of the administration. It was like they couldn't stand the fact that like we were trying to rise above the station in our in our environment. It was like, you got to remember your reality. And I was never separated from my reality. I just felt like, you know what? At some point, my mind has to shift from being an incarcerated person to actually living like a regular human being and taking responsibilities for my actions, for my work product, you know, for my representation of the people that I'm like representing inside of the prison system. There was maybe twice where I got death threats for stories that I wrote. And it wasn't stories that I was uncovering, you know, like prison gang violence or drug trafficking and stuff like that. It was stories that were about prison policy, about them changing, you know, like who they were going to house, where and why. 
And then like I would get threats, you know, just because like you shouldn't be reporting that like people are going to think that we're all like we're all like the SNYs. We're all like the PCs, the protective custody inmates. And it's like that's not what I'm saying in the story. I'm just reporting on something that's happening. I'm not pushing the policy. I'm just reporting. And that's when you realize like people tend to like make assumptions based on their fears, not based on reality. And it's like, how do you get them to think and realize, you know what? I'm not the enemy. So I sat down and had a conversation with these two guys, right? And I said, look, we're all in a time of uncertainty. We all have certain fears. We all know what prison gangs are going to think about these changes that are happening. We all have to make a choice. You can either stay at this prison and program with everybody else and maybe go home, or you can get transferred and continue the prison gang lifestyle and never go home. I choose to stay because I'm trying to go home. I don't care who they house around me but it's an individual choice. Do you know that those two individuals that were threatening my life and stuff, they ended up staying and programming with all these people that they didn't want to program with? And now they've, they got released last year. Yeah, I feel like those are signs and miracles and, and uh, interventions that they needed. And thank God that you were there to have that conversation. You know, I, I felt like there was situations in, in my life that people sat down to me and I was just like, whatever, I don't care. But in the back of my head, I'm really paying attention. And so God bless them, man. How did you advocate for yourself? You know, you're a journalist now, you're doing kind of what I consider award-winning writing and, you know, making people feel sometimes uncomfortable about who you were and what stories you were telling. How are you able to amplify your story to get released early? You know, that's a, it's like Khan said, that's a miracle mm -hmm. in and of itself. One of the things that you know, I keep reflecting on, right, is the fact that I'm not a special individual. There are many people probably, you know, a little bit more intelligent than me, right? Much more charismatic and stuff. I just happen to be in a good position and a good place with a lot of support and a nice platform. I think for me, like the biggest thing that made a difference, you know, in, in my circumstances, you know, the Washington Post published my personal essay on me going from being a racist Hispanic to like somebody who had an open mind and was very empathetic to the plight of every race and people in prison, right? Growing up in the California prison system, I became very prejudiced towards African-Americans. And it was just one of those things where I was just segregated all the time. But then I realized like, man, like we're all in the same boat. We're all struggling. We're all minorities and we're all going through this. And I remember the day that one of the guys that was with me, Bon Rue, and he told me, he says, you know, why don't you apply for a commutation with the governor? You know, you've been incarcerated since you were a juvenile. Maybe, you know, there's a chance that they might give you a second chance. And I was thinking like, man, there's other people that are more qualified, better equipped, you know? And he's like, if you get it, that's great. If you don't, you ain't losing nothing by applying. And I filed my commutation. And I remember when they came to interview me and the guy told me, he says, you know, Mr. Vasquez, I want you to give me what happened from the cradle to the crime and from the crime to this commutation. He says, and if I got to ask you a question, that means I'm prying. So I just need you to be honest with me. And I spoke for like the next hour and a half. And I told my whole story. I didn't leave anything out. I didn't sugarcoat it. I didn't try and downplay anything. I was accountable. I told my story because you know what? If you get one shot in life, you got to take it because you ain't never going to get that shot again. And two months later, I got called to the captain's porch, which is like, you know, right before you get out to the warden's office, right? And I remember Kevin Escalera, he says, hey, you know, the governor's office wants to talk to you. 
And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know why you're here? I said, nah. He's like, they're about to let you go home. <laughs> and I'm like, nah, man, you crazy. <laughs> and yeah, Governor Jerry Brown commuted my sentence, you know, and I was overwhelmed with gratitude and surprise at the same time. I don't know if you can imagine what it's like, right? If you have a determinate sentence, you know you're only going to do 10, 20, 15, whatever, right? But when you're sitting with a couple life sentences, you don't never know if you're going to go home. And, you know, to hear the fact that like all of a sudden, right, there's more than a chance of you going home. It's like a for sure thing. It's like, man, like my whole world crumbled because that whole time I had been preparing to die in prison. And all of a sudden I'm going home. People in prison don't talk about when they coming home because you're scared of losing that date. Man. Right. Did you go back? <laughs> exactly. Did you go back to your cell and just like stood <laughs> quiet and was like celebrating? Oh, no, no. You know what? The, the the problem with commutations, right, is because they end up on the news. Oh. So, like, everybody knows, right? So, so you got to, like, share with everybody anyway. Yeah, I mean, you just got to put up with it, right? Like, it wasn't so much that people were envious, right? It was that people were wondering why and how. Why you? You just got to this prison, you know? And that's one of the things that I realized, right, that people don't get mad over the fact that you're, like, winning. They get mad at the fact that it's you and not them. And I remember when I became editor-in-chief, I went through the same thing. Part of my crew was like, well, you're the youngest, you're the newest, you know, why should it be you? And it's like, I believe in this concept of grace. And under grace, you know, like you get what you don't deserve. It's not what you deserve, right? That's why it's called grace. It's like somebody extends to you favor that you don't merit. And I believe that I've been a recipient of that, whether it's been from people or from God, right? I've had favor upon my life that I can't explain and I don't try to. I just try to live in the fact that, you know what, like I'm grateful to be able to give back and to use this second chance to make a difference because I'm only going to live once. So like there were those people that, you know, like I was afraid that, oh man, they might try and do something stupid so that I don't go home. But then I was like, you know what, I just got to trust the process because you know what, I've been brought this far when I thought I was going to end up dead before the age of 18. I'm 39 years old this year, you know, so I'm very grateful to be where I am today. Even though I don't have or I'm not in a place where other people would say, oh, that's what success looks like. It's like, no, success for me is freedom. And now today you got that, man. And I want you to speak on that. Like, what are you doing today? You know, since you've been home. You know, earlier I had said that I, I appreciate your hiring model and your business model. You know, the biggest struggle that people have coming home from prison, right, is finding the community of acceptance, finding community in general, and then finding the job and a livelihood. You know, when I first came home, two days after I got out, I got out on a Wednesday. I was volunteering that Friday. I was already in deep East Oakland, volunteering with the youth, feeding the homeless, handing out food to dis, uh, disenfranchised, marginalized communities. I hit the ground running because you know what? When I committed myself to like change, it was changing my environment and impacting people's lives. I can trace the date back to 2014, right? In this prison system at Folsom State Prison, where I just wanted to do good to everybody in spite of who they were, what they were like and stuff. And I wanted to continue that trajectory when I got out. So when I got out, I started volunteering right away, got my first job, you know, the two months after I got out. I was fortunate because the program that they put me in was called the Homecoming Project from Impact Justice. And they place you in somebody's home, right? So the Department of Corrections, because I had demonstrated that I was rehabilitated, let me go into this housing program where they put you in somebody's home. They don't even send you to a transitional housing center. And they let a community member nurture you into the community. And I remember Miss Candy Thornton just taking me, you know, she took me to her church. 
She took me to her community center. She took me everywhere. And you know what? I never experienced the amount of grace and love as when I first got out. And I had heard so many war stories by people who had parole before. It's like, you know, the community ostracized you. It's like you're walking around with the felony on your back, you know, and nobody wants to embrace you. And I had a completely different experience. I I think it's a, a whole different story in 2019 than 10 years ago. Criminal justice and all this conversation about reform in this space, it just became a hot topic and it's now sexy. So when people came home before, like nobody wanted to deal with people like that. You know what I mean? And I think it was a very difficult process, even for the people that are coming home that are working with me today. They're like, parole is so easy. You know, I don't know why people used to complain about parole. I'm like, mm-hmm. parole was mm-hmm. not that easy for me when I first came home. I had to do yeah, I had to report right. every single week. They random drug test. They had to come to my crib, knock on the door, search things around. You know, it was a whole whole different system. But now, thank God we have people like that could take you into their homes and be empathetic and understand like you need some type of transition and and accept that grace and that love. But back then, I didn't see that. Yeah. I remember when Koss was first on parole, every time the parole officer came around, it was like a family event. It was like, you know, the the alarm was going and we had to make sure everything was right, everything was clean, that cost, you know, brushed his teeth, you yeah, know. You, like, and you couldn't even have alcohol around the house. You know, they could violate you oh, for wow. that. You, you're not supposed to be around alcohol. There's just so many regulations. And it's like uh, fraternizing is an issue. You can't be around somebody who's been on parole. Now, like, it's just right. way more accepted than back then. It was a catch-22 because our family, like my cousin that lived down the hall, you know, was also on parole too. Like, so what do I do? I can't see my family, right. but it's just, uh, it's it's a crazier process today. And so tell us a little bit about that transition. You know, when Koss came out his final time, it was a whole new world. And at least for Koss, he was in and out of the system. So, you know, he had times where he could like adapt or catch up with society but for you, you know, you pretty much been locked up for almost half your life at that time. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a, a, a huge transition. I keep telling folks, in spite of how well organized in prison programs are for reentry, they don't teach you how to iron your clothes. They don't teach you how to wash your clothes. They don't teach you how to go grocery shopping. They don't teach you how to call an Uber, how to use Lyft. They don't teach you none of that. So my brother picks me up from the prison at San Quentin, drives me to a hotel. We go out and eat and stuff. And he's like, hey, I got to leave tomorrow morning. I'm going to put Uber on your um, on your phone and you just got to get to the parole office on your own. And I'm like, you're going to put who on my phone? <laughs> you know, it's like, he's like, oh, Uber, you just call a car, right? I said, what you mean? He's like, yeah, it's it's linked. It's linked to my credit card and you just call a, ca- a car, right? And I'm like, and the car's going to come pick me up. I said, how I know it ain't somebody trying to kill me that's going to pick me up? <laughs> So I ended up walking to the parole office, right? Because I was afraid to call an Uber. But I think some of the biggest things that I noticed like coming out, number one was a cell phone. I mean, I had a contraband cell phone when I was in the prison system. I ain't gonna lie, <laughs> right? But like an iPhone, man, we talking about like, you know, light years away from the little flip phones that we yep, had in prison. The prepaid, the so prepaid all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So all of a sudden, I'm over here, you know, opening it with my thumb. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. You know, didn't even know how to use a camera, none of that. But culturally, like socially and stuff like that, I found myself being awkward, right? Because 
you know, one of the things inside, it's like, if you're not going to eat something off your tray, like you always offer it to somebody else that's at your table. And out here, like, I remember the first week, like everybody wanted to take me out to eat. There was people who wanted to like come hang out and stuff, right? We go to restaurants and stuff. And it's like, oh, they're like, oh, I'm not going to eat this. I'm like, all right, let me reach over and grab that, right? Until one of them was like, oh, we don't do that out here. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's not polite to take stuff off of people's plates. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how am I, sp- how am I supposed to know that? <laughs> uh, but there was like a couple of huge changes for me. Like I didn't, I didn't parole home. I stayed up here in Northern California. I live out here in Oakland and the dynamics are different. Like the gang dynamics, the race dynamics, you know, like the whole environment is different, even politically. Orange County and some of the LA County areas, right? Like they're predominantly Republican, you know, they have different political settings and stuff like that. And out here, like I learned the first week that I was out, like, you know, to use pronouns. I didn't even know I had to explain my pronouns. Like that was a big change for me. Uh, You know, (laughs) (laughs) that was a huge change for me. That never existed before. I never had to explain, you know, who I was or what I was. All of a sudden, like, here I am, you know, with a new culture in front of me, right? And it's like, okay, you know, I'm open-minded, right? But it's like every single setting. The other thing, too, was just like, you grow up in a, in a male-dominated environment, you're awkward around the opposite sex. You don't know the social cues. I grew up in the prison system. I grew up in the juvenile system. So my thing was like, I treat everybody the same. Well, you can't treat everybody the same. Yep. Can't every, you can't call everybody bro, because all of a sudden now you got like women in the room and stuff, right? You can't just make assumptions and stuff. So having to deal with those changes was something totally different. And then the other thing too is like going in as a kid and coming out as a grown man, something in your mind hasn't grown up yet. There wasn't like these, you know, hills of growth and stuff like that. It was just like all linear. So I come out. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like, I don't have anything on my resume. There's 19 years of nothing. And it's like, how do you explain that to anybody? Yeah, no, I, I get the transition. I feel like, you know, a, a lot of people that I've hired have done like, you know, anywhere between 10 to almost 30 years. And they go in at 16, 17, 18, 19, and they, they come out as that 19-year-old person. But still, it's a you know you 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 learn and you grow in prison in a different like learning those jail politics and understanding like you can't cross that line. But when people you see it out in the street, you're like, yo, that's mad disrespectful. Uh, it's not disrespectful in the real world, you know. People stepping on somebody's yeah. shoes or bumping into somebody, you know what I mean? It's a whole different story. But it's it's just a wild process, man. I think we could go on and on. I would love to like hear your transition about coming out during COVID time and being incarcerated. But I would love to hear more about like the newspaper model in San Quentin and how that could transition and grow, you know, and being distributed everywhere in other states. So there's a couple of dynamics that help the success of San Quentin News and also San Quentin as a prison. Like it went from being like, you know, gladiator school to being the hub of rehabilitation. And there's two factors that I like I like to credit, right? Number one is community involvement. The Bay Area is very liberal, very, you know, political slanted, right? You know, towards rehabilitation, towards reform, towards second chances. So it's unique in that way. And it's like San Quentin is like they stand to benefit from it because like we have about a thousand volunteers, but that wasn't always a mindset. There was a time when people didn't really care. But I think like you said, cause, you know, these conversations that have been happening about criminal justice reform 
and what does public safety actually look like, those conversations have spurred a lot of people to get involved. And so I think one of the things for like me coming home, like I remember, you know, sitting in that uh, chair of editor in chief. And I remember if I ever get the opportunity, I want to expand this opportunity to other people in other prisons and other states. And the reason why I wanted to do that was because I saw what it did for the guys inside of San Quentin. So for us, like when I became operations coordinator for Friends of San Quentin News about a year and a half ago, you know, it was like, okay, how do we build capacity to like build out the infrastructure of the newspaper? So the newspaper, just so you get a glimpse of like the model, we have the Journalism Guild, which is a farm team. That's where we recruit our writers from. They produce the stories. But we have an instructor who comes in to teach from UC Berkeley. So they actually teach them basic journalism skills. We have eight advisors who do editing and proofing with the guys. So they provide mentorship and then they transition onto staff. And it's hard to replicate that unless we do a video component and a written curriculum. And then we can expand that. So last year, for the first time in the history of California prisons and San Quentin News, we were able to move the Journalism Guild into a women's facility at Folsom. And that was our first expansion so that we can get not only the voices of the women, but also to expand the model as a pilot and see how this was going to work. Right off the bat, the first three months were like trial and error because we didn't have the volunteer base out in Sacramento that we have in the Bay. So currently, I literally drive from the Bay Area every Saturday out into Folsom, which is two and a half hours away from the Bay, so that I can take volunteers over there to teach the women how to do journalism and then get their stories so that we can publish in the paper. That's not a sustainable model. If we're going to go into other institutions and into other states, we have to have partners in the community. We have to have volunteers. We have to have people that are going to be advocates, and we have to have people that are going to be engaged so that they can actually, number one, make sure that the incarcerated's interests are represented, and number two, make sure that we have people there that are going to be able to mentor them along the way. I think that's a great idea and a great just test. Going from one prison, not really like taking the model across the country in day one. You know, I think doing it little by little in different areas in Fulham and, and growing that way is a great way to see if it works. So we'll see, man. We'll see. But I, I want to close it out by like just asking you where can we find you? Where can we read your stuff? You know, can we find old literature of yours? that we could share with the public, you know, whoever's listening. Yeah, for sure. So we do have a website, sanquinnews.com. That's where we have all our writings, all our publication. That's where we have most of our stuff. I do have a website for the Friends of San Quentin News. That's where we provide our newsletter and updates for what we're doing as an organization. And then we do have a YouTube channel for our video film crew. That's the one that I forgot to mention. So as Friends of San Quentin News, I also help supervise and spearhead uh, an incarcerated film crew called Forward This Productions. So it's one of the first of its kinds in the nation as well. Nice. You know, so you can see their stories on YouTube and or their website, forwardthis.org. I'd love to uh, just ask you one more question. I was uh, reading an article about you and you said you might want to write a screenplay. Are you currently writing that or, you know, what's next for your personal journalist? artistic career? People keep asking me to write a book, right? Because I like telling stories and I'm a good storyteller. So I have been focusing on writing some chapters. I do have an outline for a book. I want to put that together. My screenplay is, uh, I got a, a bit of a dark sense of humor. 
<laughs> so I had to stop that one <laughs> just because it was like it was too realistic and it cut too close to home. So I was like, let me take a break off this one. But yeah, I do have a book in the works. Well, thank you, Jesse. I appreciate you joining us and we'll definitely catch up. You know, I, I can't wait to see like what you have to offer this world and see what you bring in. Maybe see that crazy screenplay one day or, you know, read your books <laughs> one day. But I appreciate you coming over here at The Hardest Step. Thank you, bro. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Hardest Step. And I'm your host, Koss. And I'm your host, Chris. To hear more stories like this one, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. We'll see you next week. Special thanks to our producers, Monica and Moyo. 